Friends, please turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, it's on page 820 of the Bible underneath your seat. That Bible is there for you this morning, and if you didn't bring a Bible, friends, if you don't own a Bible, we would ask that you please just feel free to take that Bible home and make it your own. Uh, Before I begin this morning, let me just double-click on one thing that Steve said earlier, and that's to invite everyone out to the hymn sing next Sunday evening at 5 p.m. right here in the worship center. Uh, This is something that we want to become an annual, if not more often, tradition at uh, Redeeming Grace Church, that we just gather at special times of the year to sing together and uh, as the people of God do. We believe that uh, this is one of the privileges that we have and we want to grow in our joy and love of singing together. But obviously at the beginning of the Thanksgiving holiday, we hope that it'll be a great kind of launching pad uh, for that week of Thanksgiving that God would increase in our hearts a genuine thanks for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And friends, after that, uh, thanks, uh, after that hymn sing, which by the way, all are invited to, both members and guests alike, we will have a traditional Arizona Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, A taco lady will be here, and we will enjoy a meal together. Uh, So uh, if uh, you're a guest or a member, we're going to ask that you sign up just so we know how much food to expect to provide. So look at our Facebook page this week, download the Church Center app. We'll try to get some signups in various places. We'll email it out to the church family. And uh, if you could just let us know if you're going to be here, that would be be helpful. You can expect to hear from Beth as well. All right, again, we're in Matthew 15 this morning as we turn to God's Word. Uh, One aspect of the of the storyline of Matthew's gospel that pops up over and over again is the theological conflict that Jesus has with the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, We got a preview of that conflict all the way back in chapter 3 when John the Baptist called the Pharisees, do you remember what he called them? A brood of vipers, right? Not a kind way to refer to them, but it was accurate. But it wasn't until chapter 9 that these snakes slithered out into the open to publicly oppose Jesus. And that really, from chapter 9 on, happens increasingly throughout the story. So in chapter 9, the scribes and and Pharisees questioned why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Later, in chapter 12, they accused him of breaking the fourth commandment because Jesus had the audacity to heal a man with a deformed hand on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. Later, when Jesus cast a demon out of a man, the Pharisees accused him of doing so in the power of Satan himself. And then afterward, ironically, demanded that Jesus give them a supernatural sign to prove who he was, as if he didn't just do that. Jesus so often demonstrated his tender mercy toward the crowds and needs, and crowds in need, but he reserved his most stern and withering rebuke for the Pharisees. Why? Because of what we see here in chapter 15. Friends, Jesus hates religious self-righteousness. He hates the type of legalism and traditionalism that sets aside God's word. Friends, let's read together to see this latest episode of theological conflict between Jesus and these leaders, and then we'll learn what God has for us. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break their tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. 
He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart, Come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of Matthew 15, 1 to 20, that I trust will be the main idea of this sermon is this. Trying to make yourself spiritually clean by external means results in hypocrisy and false worship. Say, John, that sounds negative. Well, friends, frankly, this whole passage has a pretty negative tone, doesn't it? As Jesus goes right at the Pharisees. Trying to make yourself spiritually clean by external means, and by external, I mean non-spiritual means, results in hypocrisy and false worship. As we look at this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees, we really see it play out in two movements, right? In verses 1 to 9, the Pharisees accuse Jesus' disciples of eating with unwashed hands, and then Jesus responds to the Pharisees about their unattachment from God's word. And then starting in verse 10, Jesus turns to the crowds to make sure that they understand this a right theology, really, of defilement and purity. So my two points of the outline this morning mirror that structure. Number one, in verses one to nine, true religion adheres to God's word, not man's traditions. True religion adheres to God's word, not man's traditions. And number two, true purity prioritizes the heart, not externals. True purity prioritizes the heart, not externals. Beloved, I pray that Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees this morning and his teaching on this matter might expose any vestiges of our hearts that are marked by this type of externalism and false worship. And that we would remember that true biblical worship, true biblical Christianity is fundamentally a matter of the heart. Number one, number one, true religion adheres to God's word, not man's traditions. Look at verse 1 again. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, now friends, the fact that the Pharisees question Jesus is obviously not new or different. What's different this time is that 
It's a delegation from Jerusalem that are doing the question, the questioning. Remember, Jesus' ministry is based in Galilee, in the north of Palestine. It's been that way since the beginning. So it's significant that the mothership, right, in Jerusalem sent this delegation of scribes and Pharisees 90 miles north to confront Jesus. You know, in Matthew, Jerusalem is featured at the beginning of the gospel and at the end of the gospel, and both times it's in relation to fierce opposition to Christ. So remember in Matthew 2, right? The Magi come to Jerusalem and they tell Herod the king about this birth of a king, and what did Herod do? He had all the baby boys of of Bethlehem slaughtered. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt. That's at the beginning. And now at the end, what's to come, Jerusalem will obviously be featured at the end of the gospel as the place where the opposition to Jesus would climax. Jerusalem is the place where he would be betrayed and crucified. So friends, the Jerusalem delegation's presence in Galilee that day no doubt meant, it's no doubt meant to function in Matthew's writing as kind of a sign of ominous clouds on the horizon. This conflict hints at a greater conflict yet to come. Notice what these Pharisees do. They try to whittle Jesus down to size by accusing his disciples. If they could successfully indict them, perhaps they could successfully indict him and so make his ministry illegitimate in the people's eyes. And what was the charge? What was the serious charge, right? That the disciples did not wash their hands before they ate. Now, wait a second. Is this a delegation from the Jerusalem Sanhedrin or the Department of Health and Human Services, right? Like, what is going on here? Why do they care so much if the disciples wash their hands? I cannot help but think that we in this this post-COVID moment, when we hear a story about unwashed hands, what, what comes into our mind? Germs, right? Well, friends, this is not about germs. This is not about the disciples' poor hygiene. The issue, we're told in verse 1, is that the disciples had broken the tradition of the elders, which, again, is likely referring to the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. This was not about hygiene. This was about holiness or their perception thereof. It wasn't about sanitation. It was about spiritual and ceremonial purity. Mark makes this this fact even more explicit in Mark 7, where he records the Pharisees asking Jesus why his disciples ate with defiled hands. It's an explicitly religious word describing ceremonial uncleanness according to the Mosaic law. It's really hard to kind of get at this, isn't it? To understand this line of thinking. Because first of all, we're just simply not familiar today, most of us, with the specific traditions of the Jewish elders that were passed down orally over hundreds of years between the Old and New Testaments. We just we didn't live in that world, right? We don't live in that world. Neither do we live under the Mosaic Code any longer. The whole thing feels foreign. Another reason I think it's hard to understand this concept of defilement is that here in the modern West, our culture has pretty much jettisoned any concept of moral or spiritual defilement. It's not that we've completely abandoned right and wrong entirely. We still have laws, right? People still have some sort of concept of right and wrong, but most of the time it's based purely on the harm or the lack thereof that their actions bring other people, right? If it doesn't hurt anyone, what's the big deal? We have no category for an action being inherently defiling, irrespective to our perception of harm. 
But clearly the Bible does. And the Jews did. The reason they were, they were so up in arms is that they believed that Jesus' disciples and therefore Jesus just kind of had a, a laissez-faire attitude toward spiritual defilement. They're just cavalier about it. Since the Pharisees were so bent out of shape about this, well, surely the Mosaic law required Israelites to ritually wash their hands before they ate, right? No. Nowhere in the law of Moses does the scripture require such a thing. That's why the Pharisees' accusation was that the disciples had not broken the Mosaic code, but broken what? The tradition of the elders. They were worried about breaking the tradition, not the Torah. The law only required that the Levitical priests the, the Levitical priests ceremonially wash their hands before serving in the tabernacle or later the temple. So it seems like what the Pharisees were doing was kind of extending the priestly ritual to the entire population. They all need to, to wash their hands before meals. Perhaps the reasoning went something like this. When people go to the marketplace, well, they may have touched something that the Gentiles touch, right? That makes them ceremonially unclean. They may have come into contact with blood or bodily discharge and all sorts of things that, that defile a person. And so when they touch their food with these unclean hands, the food then becomes uh, ceremonially unclean, and then unclean food goes into their body, and they themselves become spiritually defiled. We need to make sure that God's people stay holy, right? Therefore, everyone needs to participate in this ritual ceremonial cleansing before every meal, and so remain pure. Friends, what they were doing was kind of building an extra fence around the perimeter of God's law right? They were trying to preserve the holiness of the people. At least that's probably what the motivation was in the beginning. And friends, we can kind of appreciate that, right? Right? We are evangelical Christians. We take seriously uh, our need to be holy and pursue the Lord. We're earnest about that. Friends, the problem wasn't that the Pharisees were super duper careful in how they applied the law as if a concern for holiness is bad. The problem wasn't even that the Pharisees had traditions. Most of us have traditions, right? We have family traditions. We have church traditions. We swim in a stream of certain doctrinal tradition. Tradition can give shape and form and depth to our life together. Traditions can be very good. In fact, Paul in the epistles even talks about the body of Christian doctrine as the tradition handed down from Christ to the apostles and then from the apostles to the church. So we're not against tradition per se. One theologian aptly put it this way. Tradition, rightly put, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Put an ism on him and it sounds really bad, doesn't it, right? Tradition for tradition's sake. Tradition that trumps the scripture. Tradition stripped of heart affection for Christ and his word. That's traditionalism. And that's what Jesus is going after here. Beloved, I am, I am very comfortable to swim in the evangelical tradition and in the reformed tradition and in the Baptist tradition. That's who we are. That's historically what we're about. But friends, those are not the banners that we fly at Redeeming Grace Church. You will not find a lot of lingo about us being Reformed or Baptist on our website. Why? Because those things are unimportant? No. 
because of the fact that it's not our theological tradition that gives life. It's not what raises the dead hearts from the spiritual grave to walk in newness of life. Only Christ through his spirit does that. So the only flag that we want to fly over Redeeming Grace Church is the banner of the Lord Jesus and his gospel. Friends, the elders want this church to be marked by love for Christ that is far and away above our love for Reformed doctrine or Baptist ecclesiology, right? Our theological tr tradition, which is obviously derived from Scripture, must complement and serve our love for Christ, not the other way around. The problem here was that the Pharisees had elevated their traditions to the level of Scripture. There was no distinction between the two. Jesus is going to make that explicit in his response, right? The Pharisees treated their application of the law as if it were the law itself. They treated tradition as if it were the Torah. They dogmatized their specific application of holiness and then, then bound everyone's conscience to that specific application. And that, my friends, is the very definition of legalism. Lots of isms today. Traditionalism, legalism, both bad. Legalism is not just the active pursuit of pleasing God. Legalism is creating extra-biblical rules and regulations in your pursuit to please God and then demanding that everyone else pursue God just like you do, whether explicitly in your words or implicitly in your attitude. If everyone doesn't apply the Scripture like you do to be holy, well, then they clearly are not holy, right? Legalism is by nature prideful, and self-justifying. Legalism lionizes self and demonizes others. So often legalists base acceptance with God on the ability to keep the traditions or rules. Pride is the root and pride is the fruit. And you can just see this putrid river of pride and self-righteousness flowing out of the Pharisees. They elevated their traditions on par with Scripture and then they evaluated the disciples' acceptance with God on whether or not the disciples kept their tradition. Now, we're going to make some application about this issue. But before we do, let's look at Jesus' response in verse 3. He doesn't answer the Pharisees' question, does he? No, he answers their attack with a counterattack, right? He responds to their question with one of his own. It's like a surgical precision knife cutting to the very heart of the issue. Verse three, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, you accuse us of breaking your tradition, but you break the very word of God for the sake of your, of your tradition. You elevate your application of the law above the law itself. And here's an example, verse four, for God commanded Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, friends, if, if there was ever a commandment that mattered to the Jews, it was the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So important was honoring parents within the Mosaic law that certain types of dishonoring of parents were worthy of death. 
Honoring one's parents not only included respect and obedience during the childhood years, but physical and financial honoring of them in their later years when they could no longer take care of themselves. So remember, Paul builds this out in 1 Timothy. We looked at it earlier this year, right? If, if a Christian refuses to care for members of his own family, he essentially denies the faith, Paul says, and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the undeniable logic of the fifth commandment. Well, what were the Pharisees doing? Well, apparently they had developed a tradition, probably derived from Leviticus's teaching on vows, in which they could take their money or their house or their possessions or whatever, and simply by making a vow, they could devote those things to God upon their death. It was a, it was a vow that basically functioned like a deferred payment to the temple, right? It'd be like you making a vow that upon your death, all your assets will be given to the church, okay? That'd be fine. You can bring it on, right? <laughs> it sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? Yes, and that was kind of part of the idea. It looks and sounds righteous. Mark in Mark 7.11 explains that this vow was called korban, which simply means gift in Aramaic. Again, this, this Korban vow was part of the tradition of the elders. But here's how the Pharisees were practicing Korban. Once one of them declared something Korban, it was like a, a magical religious force field walled off that, that thing from use in, in, in any other situation that they might have used it for in a godly way. So, so what would happen when aging mom or dad of a Pharisee was in need? Whoops, mom and dad. I am so sorry that I can't help you. My house is Corban, right? My money is Corban. It's devoted to God. I, ju I, I just can't help you. Friends, you don't have to be a theological ninja to see that this tradition was a pretense for the Pharisees' greed. On its face, it was deeply wicked. And worst of all, the Pharisees cloaked their greed in the, in the guise of piety. They disguised their love of money and the veneer of devotion to God, while all the while despising the very parents who raised them. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You have nullified God's word as if the fifth commandment does not apply to you. Beloved, we ought to recognize that even we as Christians can fall prey to this type of of thing, where religion or the Bible or Christianity becomes a cloak for our own sin. Be on guard against this tendency. Just transparently, and Lindsay and I have dealt with this, I trust, but I found myself doing this very thing on Friday. I was working from home. I was writing the sermon. Lindsay asked her to, or asked me to help her with something really small that would have taken just two, three, four minutes or whatever, and I protested because I needed to focus on the sermon. Now, do you think God was honored in that moment because I needed to be focused on writing the sermon for Sunday? I know he wasn't. There are countless ways that we can do this. Christians can be lazy or apathetic in their work, in their workplace, because it's just not as important as the ministry or kingdom work. Friends, that's not godliness, that's laziness. Husbands can belittle their wives under the guise of Christian headship in the home. Friends, that's not Christian headship, that's abusive leadership. 
Christians might hoard their resources and never give to the church to support the ministry of the gospel under the pretense of providing for their family. Friends, that's not provision. That's the love of money. Singles might excuse sexual immorality because God simply hasn't given them a spouse yet. And friends, that's not a rational response to providence. That's a lustful heart. Beloved, guard against this insidious tendency. Don't excuse your sin using God as your defense witness. It is a dangerous place for your soul. Notice how Jesus frames it in verse 7. In response to the Pharisees' indictment of the disciples, uh, he indicts them with the strongest language possible. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus here quotes Isaiah 29, 13. In Isaiah 29, uh, as Joseph read earlier, Isaiah prophetically just blisters the inhabitants of Jerusalem for their wickedness, right? They were like children who cannot read they, or even open a scroll. Their religion has no personal reality. Their, their hearts are far from me, says the Lord. They had reduced worship to a matter of carrying out human rules. Jesus says, hey, listen, Isaiah wasn't just talking about the Israelites from Jerusalem in his day. He was prophetically speaking of you from Jerusalem now who embody the hypocrisy and false worship of Israel of old. Friends, you see, the Pharisees weren't just misguided in their application of the law. They were, they were hypocrites. Why? Because they said one thing and did another? That's normally what we think of when we think of hypocrisy, right? Saying one thing and doing another. No. The Pharisees did exactly what they told others to do, right? They washed their hands religiously, pun intended, right? Before every meal. No, in this case, hypocrisy isn't saying one thing and doing another, but rather professing to love God and honor God verbally, yet with a heart that is far from Him. We can understand how this works, right? Those who erect extra biblical fences or traditions or rules for their standing before God and then expect everyone else to do the same, they're not basing their relationship with God on his grace through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not salvation from sin by God's mercy. It's salvation through self-effort and self-achievement and self-righteousness that leaves one's heart proud and cold and dead and distant from God. The Pharisees profess to be close to God because of their religiosity, their Bible talk, their church talk, right? Jesus says their hearts were far away. The Pharisees thought themselves to be this kind of paragon of religious devotion. And Jesus called what they practiced false worship because they taught as scripture, the commandments of men. Again, friends, Jesus's sharpest words were for the self-righteous. He wanted to turn the Pharisees system upside down because it was damning. There is nothing more deadening to our spiritual lives than cold traditionalism or legalism. But friends, it's not just those who practice a works-based righteousness or merit-based traditionalism like maybe Roman Catholicism or Islam or Buddhism that are in danger of this type of hypocrisy and false worship. Friends, each and every one of us, listen to me, each and every one of us, every day of our lives battles the magnetic pull of our hearts toward legalism. 
It's just a default posture of the human heart, apart from the grace of the gospel of Christ. In our pride, we want to justify ourselves before others. We seek to lift up ourselves spiritually by putting others down. We base our relationship with God on what we do instead of what he has done. That is the pull of our hearts. Beloved, beware of the slow and steady migration away from God of the legalistic heart. Be on guard against it. Because legalism is so appealing. Did you know that? Legalism is so appealing. Why is that? Well, we've already talked about it. Number one, it appeals to our pride for obvious reasons. We're proud people. It appeals to our pride. But there's another reason I think legalism appeals to us. Legalism thinks that holiness can be manageable, right? A heart wholly devoted to God, well, that's a tough thing to pull off. But a few rules I should keep, I can do that, right? That I can manage. It takes hard work to know how best to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. It takes diligence to discern what my heart craves, to repent of my wrong desires, to order my life to the glory of God. It's just so much easier. Just make a list of regulations to live by, right? But here's the thing. If you're not careful, when you elevate man-made traditions and preferences and applications to the level of scriptural command, not only will you find yourself justifying yourself when you keep those rules, you will be prone to despise others who don't keep the rules like you do, just like the Pharisees. Can you believe so-and-so? They send their kids to a public school. Clearly, they don't take seriously the culture's influence on their children. So-and-so homeschool their kids. They must not care about being salt and light in the world. Did you hear so-and-so took their kids trick-or-treating? They don't care about idolatry. I saw so-and-so's pics of the concert at the Footprint Arena. They must not love God. Beloved, doing or not doing any of those things I just mentioned may be legitimate, godly choices to make. But here's where what legalism fails to do. Legalism blurs the distinction between biblical command and wisdom application. Friends, they are not the same, right? Thus says the Lord... And my specific application of thus says the Lord are two different things. Granted, sometimes biblical commands are just so black and white. It's crystal clear what obedience or disobedience entails. So for instance, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Got it. I know exactly what that means and exactly how to keep that, right? The problem often comes when a biblical command is more broad and we're left to make specific application, right? Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Broad commands. The commands are broad enough for Christians to apply them in different ways, in different contexts, all in legitimate and godly ways as their conscience allow, allows. Friends, I know I'm taking a while with this point, but we don't come to this type of thing often in the text. So I'm, I'm lingering here to make some extended application, okay? Legalistic, pharisaical intuitions do not make room for diverse wisdom applications. And in failing to make that type of room, legalists trample the consciences of others. They seek to bind other people's conscience to the precise ways that their conscience is bound. 
no matter whether it's ex- if it's explicit scripture or implicit application. In pride, they flaunt their own decisions while denigrating the decisions of others. Friends, there are so many destructive effects of this type of legalistic spirit in the life of a church. When, when we elevate our application of the Scripture on par with the Scripture itself, you know what happens? We're, we're in danger of making the gospel unclear. Our pursuit of obedience and our application of holiness implicitly replaces the centrality of the gospel in our life together. It's now my work, not Christ's work, that takes center stage in broadcasting how we are to relate to God. And friends, you know what happens when we declarify and decentralize the gospel of Jesus? We are at risk of destroying our unity in Christ. Because here's the ironic thing. Ironically, promoting biblical freedom of conscience where the Bible allows it also promotes and protects Christian unity. By preserving freedom of conscience where the Bible allows, we promote the supernatural love between us that the Spirit gives. Binding consciences in areas of of doctrinal practice in which the Bible is silent or unclear, it works directly against gospel unity. The gravitational center of unity shifts away from Christ to our preferences, Christ to our specific application, and it's a gravitational center that cannot hold, at least in a way that honors Christ. Christ Jesus alone is the tie that binds. If true religion adheres to God's word, friends, to wrap this point up, if true religion adheres to God's word, then the best way to work against legalism in our hearts is by keeping ourselves tenaciously tethered to God's word. Beloved, let God's word constantly reform your convictions and calibrate your conscience. Let it conform reform your convictions and calibrate your conscience. Understand what the implications of the gospel of Jesus are for your applications and preferences. Yes, yes, friends, by all means, be dogmatic and convictional where the scripture is dogmatic and convictional. But on the other hand, don't go farther than the scripture goes. Don't create an extra biblical code to live by and then hoist it upon others in your life. Realize the difference between biblical command and biblical wisdom and how you apply those commands. That's what mature believers do. And friends, as we do this work in the scripture together, as you do this work of kind of tethering yourself to the scripture, you know what you should do? You should invite the godly input of other mature believers in the church. So you should ask questions like, hey friend, what do you think about my application in this area? This is where I've landed on such and such an issue. How are you thinking about that, right? In other words, cultivate the humility to realize that that just because you're convinced of something is good and right and best, doesn't mean that it is. It It might merely be one of many ways to faithfully apply God's word. True religion adheres to God's word, not man's traditions. Number two, and I believe shorter, True purity prioritizes the heart, not externals. In verse 10, Jesus pivots from addressing the Pharisees to addressing the onlooking crowd. 
And as he teaches them, he actually answers the Pharisees' accusation directly about hand-washing, right? His response to the Pharisees in verses 1 to 9 was essentially, I don't even need to answer your question about breaking tradition because elevating tradition above God's word is false religion, right? It's false worship. Now he's going to deal more directly with this issue of purity. Verse 10, and he called the people to him and he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not food that defiles a person, but, but words, right? It's not anything on the outside coming in, but what's on the inside going out. Jesus has already said this in chapter 12, verse 34 of the Pharisees. It's from the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. One's words reflects one's heart, and that is the true source of defilement. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Like, no duh, right? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has, has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. It's an Old Testament image. To be planted by God means to be part of his vineyard, right? To be part of his chosen people. So Psalm 44.2, if you want to look it up, Isaiah 60.21, okay? Talks about the planting of the people of God. Jesus is unequivocally saying that the Pharisees are not of God, right? They're not part of God's people. They are going to be uprooted in judgment on the last day. They're spiritually blind, so don't give them any time of day because if you do so, you're going to open yourself up to spiritual danger, right? It's the blind leading the blind, and you're going to fall into the pit, right? Stay away from legalistic teachers. I mean, we could go for a while on that, but just let's take that as it is. Stay away from legalistic teachers. Verse 15, but Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Parable here, I think, meaning kind of the proverbial statement of verse 11, right? About what goes in and out of the mouth. He said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and pass, uh, into the mouth passes into the stomach and it is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Friends, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that our culture has lost all sense of spiritual defilement, that there are actions that by nature are morally dirty. Friends, clearly Jesus does not agree with our culture, right? His response to the Pharisees' external understanding of defilement isn't to say, hey, guess what, guys? Good news. I'm here now, and you don't even need to be concerned with defilement anymore. No, it's quite the opposite. Jesus reorients their theology of sin and defilement, and in doing so, he really raises the bar, right? He radically internalizes the entire topic. He says in verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? In other words, even if you eat with unwashed hands and your food is somehow ritually contaminated by your tradition, it doesn't make you spiritually unclean. It, it, it can't, right? I mean, this is as close as Jesus gets to potty humor, right? I mean, this is it. Food goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, and then out the other end, right? It never touches your soul. It doesn't lodge in your heart. It cannot defile you. In Mark 7, Mark mentions that here Jesus is kind of setting the theological groundwork to declare all foods ceremonially clean, 
right? In the new covenant, no longer would there be food laws that made Israel distinct from the Gentiles of the surrounding nations. Jews and Gentiles will be one in Christ Jesus. And Peter is going to get a, a living color illustration of this on the rooftop of Cornelius' house in, in Acts 10, right? God is declaring all animals, all foods to be clean, to eat with thanksgiving. Nothing can defile you that you eat. Defilement is not from the outside in, Jesus says. It's from the inside out. Therefore, spiritual purity is not achieved from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Look at verse 18 again. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Friends, Jesus does not locate the source of human defilement on the outside coming in, but again on the inside coming out. It's what lodges in the human heart that defiles. It's what rests in the real you. The heart is simply the operating center of your life. In biblical thought, it's not so much your emotions like it, it is in our kind of lingo, but it really details your, your thoughts, your desires, your will. Your heart dictates your speech and your behavior and everything you do. All that you are and all that you do spring from your heart. And Jesus says what you naturally find in the human heart is not pristine. It's dirty beyond description. Jesus goes on a riff here on the, the sixth to ninth commandments, right? Out of the heart come evil thoughts. It's kind of like a catch-all. And now he goes through the commandments, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In Adam, all humanity is corrupted by the presence and guilt of sin. Our hearts, friends, are not naturally spick and span. They are naturally filthy. No one has to teach us how to crave the things mentioned in this list. We, by nature, want and pursue and pine after the types of things that Jesus mentions here. Friends, we don't do what we do because of our circumstances. You don't do what you do because of your circumstances. You don't. Or because of your upbringing. Or because of your background. You do what you do because of what resides in your heart. We do what we do because we want what we want. Can our circumstances and upbringing and background provide the context of particular temptations for us? Absolutely. Can those things make us more susceptible to specific types of sins? 100%. But beloved, the clear teaching of Christ Jesus is that it's not what's outside that defiles us. It's not food. It's not suffering. It's not our context. What defiles us is our heart. Every day... The world, the world's messaging is screaming the exact opposite. Our culture catechizes us to think that our greatest problems are outside us. It's, they're out there in the world, right? The, the injustice and oppression and suffering of this life and obviously external difficulties and suffering are often incredibly hard, which is why this idea makes sense from a godless worldview. Meanwhile, at the same time, this messaging of our entertainment and, and music and philosophy in the culture is that the ultimate solution to your problems, the ultimate good, it rests within you, right? It's in your heart. 
So discover yourself, right? Embrace yourself. Express yourself based on what you discover and how you embrace yourself to be. Follow your heart, right? Because, because the power that lies within you can overcome the greatest obstacles that are outside of you. My well, friends, that perspective sounds so attractive. It's because it appeals to our selfishness, <laughs> right? It's a godless worldview that, that snuggles our sin in the warm blankets of expressive individualism, right? Friends, Jesus takes a sledgehammer to this worldview right here in our passage, right? Our greatest problem is not outside us. Our greatest problem lies within. It's the defiling corruption of our hearts that has separated us from a holy God. This news is bleak. There is, there is no remedy or recourse within us to scrub out this dirt. Any effort to do so is like trying to wash away our sin with dirty water. So thorough is our sin that it pervades every nook and cranny of our lives, our thoughts, our desires, our wills, our actions. This is what theologians call total depravity. It's not that we're as bad as that we could be in every area. Praise God for his restraining common grace. It's that our depravity is total. It's complete. It's pervasive. There's not an area of our lives that is not touched by sin's defilement. But here's the great news, friends. Even though our greatest problem is inside us, the solution to that problem is not. The solution to our problem is outside us. We need an alien righteousness, as the reformer said, an outside righteousness. We need a cleansing agent from without. We could never ascend to, to, to the Holy One that we read about this morning because of our impurity. So in matchless love and mercy, the Holy One in Christ condescended to us. Christ Jesus isn't just the one who exposes our impurity. He is the one who cleanses it. In his earthly life, Jesus lived a life of perfect purity so that through faith in him, his righteousness might be credited to us. The sinless one died on the cross, shedding his blood as an atoning sacrifice that satisfied God's just and holy wrath that burned against us because of our defilement. So that all that come to him by faith, for all who come to him by faith, Christ Jesus' blood cleanses and forgives us of all our sin. And having lived for us and died for us, Christ Jesus rose for us. So that if we turn from our sin and pride and sexual immorality and lying and slander and gluttony and drunkenness and self-righteousness and legalism and fill in the blank and we rest fully in Christ Jesus to rescue us, he will raise us from the dead spiritually to, to, so that we might walk in newness of life. Friend, the answer is not to follow your heart. If you're here without Christ, the answer is not to follow your heart. The answer is to follow Jesus by faith. And if you'll do this, friend, you'll discover that God in Christ through his spirit will make you a new person. He'll not just cleanse your sin. He'll give you a new heart. He'll make you a new you. He'll not just cleanse you. He'll renovate you from the inside out, beginning a process that will just last the rest of your life like we confessed this morning in the article of faith. He'll make you more and more like his son. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
closing with this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus' word here help us too make sense of our indwelling sin, don't they, right? The mystery of the new birth is that even though Christ Jesus makes us new, the barnacles of sin still latch onto our heart, right? We haven't been delivered from the presence of sin, even though we've been delivered from the power and the penalty of our defilement. So how do we deal with the traces of sin's defilement that still reside in us? Well, clearly Jesus teaches here that the answer is not to just kind of gloss over it with our spiritual piety, right? That's what the Pharisees did. They tried to look godly, but inside they were corrupt. Really, the answer for us as Christians is not so much different than it is for our non-Christian friends. The answer is not for you this morning to atone by your good behavior or by your religious activity or by your ministerial service. The answer is not to hide your sin and hope no one will notice. The answer is to deal with it in true repentance. And not just at the level of our behavior, to repent at the level of our hearts. Not just to confess and forsake what we do, but to confess and forsake what we want. To confess and forsake our idols. And as we regularly deal with our sin and repentance, you know what we do next? We come back to the cross for a fresh application of gospel grace. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of Christ's work, that through our union with him, we are dead to sin, alive to God. We renew our hearts and minds through God's word, and we pray that the spirit might grow us in purity and love. If our greatest problem lies in our hearts, the deepest well of our desires and will, then we need the spirit to do his transforming work there in that deepest well. It's not enough to recognize our sin and just kind of manufacture a way to stop doing it. We may stop for a time, but if our hearts don't change, neither will the sin. We need to replace our sinful desires with new desires. We need to replace our sinful affections with Christ-honoring affections. Only, friends, only a new desire will expel an old desire. And those new desires come by beholding the glory of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, we are changed into Christ's image by beholding the unveiled glory of God in Christ. Friends, you'll love what you look at. You'll worship whatever glory you set your eyes on. That's how God created us in his image in the beginning. That's how he's recreating us in his image in Christ. Sinful saint, you can change. You can change. More accurately, God through his spirit can change you. He saved you for this very purpose. But it will only happen as you prioritize your heart. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here to think about in your word this morning. We ask that you, that we corporately and individually, would let the Spirit do its work. Even as we sing now, O great God, we ask that you, the God of highest heaven, would occupy our lowly hearts and conform us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name.